everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror. Um, we look at everything that's happening or try to in the vast global landscape of uh, jihadist activity. Uh, joining me today is Caleb Weiss. He's a contributor to the Long War Journal, my expert on Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and everything happening in Africa. And he is also a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation. Caleb, thank you so much for joining me yet again. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. Always glad to be here. Yeah, it's great having you on. We're going to, we're going to, today we're going to talk about two things. We're going to, Al Qaeda has yet to announce its leader, uh, new leader after the U.S. killed Ayman al Zawahiri. Um, we should have had something within the last month and that hasn't happened. Caleb and I are going to quickly go over what we think's happening there. Why hasn't this been made, um, an announcement been made public and what are some of the things that could be preventing this? And then we're going to dip into the, dip our toe into the pool, the cesspool that is the jihad in Somalia. Um, Caleb and I have been following that closely and we've had, it's really been a big focus of what we've been writing on the last uh, month or two. That, do you say that's correct, Caleb? I'd say that's correct. I mean, in terms of like what's going on in Africa, besides the, the mess within Sahel, Somalia is definitely where everything is sort of popping off right now, for lack of a yeah, better we, term. Yeah, no, right. You know, things are blowing up in Somalia is, uh, you know, a pun intended. Um, and not a good one at that. The, you know, we've always described uh, Shabab, which is Al Qaeda's branch in East Africa, as the the Taliban of Africa. I think they're the best organized, uh, most cohesive, and um, most effective of Al Qaeda's organizations um, at this point in time across across the world. Um, they have, uh, you know, effectively suppressed uh, the Islamic State's attempts to usurp the jihad. In Somalia, they've uh, remained organized in the face of multiple offensives against them. And we'll get more into that uh, as we talk about uh, Somalia. But uh, it's definitely, you know, this is one of the areas where I think if you if the next uh, uh, emirate within Al-Qaeda's uh, the, uh, plans for a global caliphate, I think Somalia would be the uh, would be my choice of where we might see Al Qaeda might see some success. But first, let's talk about Zawahiri. Uh, Zawahiri was killed by the U.S. in a well, an airstrike, most likely a drone, uh, in Kabul, in the capital of Afghanistan, at the end of July of this year. He was being sheltered by Sirajun Haqqani, who is the head of the Al Qaeda linked allied subgroup, however you want to describe it, um, and it's a faction of the Taliban. Sarajuddin is, of course, one of two deputy Taliban emirs, the other being Mullah Yaqub, the son of uh, of Mullah Omar, the founder of the Taliban, and Sarajuddin also serves as one of the, as the Taliban's interior minister as well. So this was certainly some bad press for the Taliban. The Taliban at first denied that Zawahiri was there, and then they said they're investigating, and then they've said nothing. Um, that investigation is going on and on and on, and I don't expect that uh, we're going to find an answer. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, Al-Qaeda, typically there's a mourning period um, where they take their time to meet up. They the, the the senior leaders gather, they vote on it, basically vote or decide on who the need, new leader is. Then typically what they do is issue a eulogy for their 
their dead leader and then announce the new leader at the same time. This is the typical process. Is that correct, Caleb? That's what you've you've witnessed over the over the years of following this. Yeah, I mean for sure, and definitely basing this off of what happened after Bin Laden was killed. Um, I mean, it was a process of what, like a month and a half, roughly a month and a half yeah. before they mm-hmm. they announced a new leader. I mean, so typically yep, and- it would be it would be a long period, but we've definitely beyond that for sure by this point. Yeah, exactly. We're, you know, end of July, end of August, end of September, we're midway, so we're two and a half months. Um, we've seen this process play out with when they're emirs of their local branches or the regional, I'm sorry, the regional branches, um, what people call their affiliates, um, you know, AQAP in, in, in Somalia, right? We AQIM. That's typically what we have seen. So, um, you know, so the, the real question here is why? Why has Al-Qaeda taken its time um, to announce its new leader? Um, It is important for Al-Qaeda to, you know, show the flag, to show the world, and to show its membership that it is, uh, remains a cohesive organization, that it has leadership, that it's able to select its new leadership. So, Caleb, what do you think some of the things are going on here? You and I had an interesting conversation. Uh, it was just last night, and I thought this was something we should share with the, uh, with the listeners. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, personally, I mean, I think you agree with this, too, is like there's potentially three different options, or, you know, probably four, actually. Um, none of which are mutually exclusive. I mean, they all kind of go hand in hand. But, I mean, just going down the list, I think one is definitely the security protocol that Al-Qaeda is following. I mean, this is a period where they just lost their their overall emir. They've had a series of, you know, other leaders died in airstrikes or raids or whatever in the last few years. Uh, you know, I'm sure the security protocol is still in place where they're trying to protect, you know, whoever is the next guy or, you know, whatever is happening. I mean, it's also a, a group in transition, right, of... of you had the the victory in Afghanistan. You had people moving. They're probably still moving. You know. So to me, I, I think that's probably part of it of trying to protect the new guy or other guys or whatever they're trying to do with you know, you know the consultations, the meetings, whatever. Um, secondly, well, before we get to that, Caleb, let's take each point at a oh, time. Sure. Okay? I mean, and, yeah. I think the I think the security protocol is probably you know a factor. It may not be the main factor at this point, but it's definitely a factor in what jihadi groups do in general, not just in, in announcing new leaders, but everything they kind of do at the top level is going to have to take into effect that security protocol, right? No, absolutely, Caleb. I think security, and, and you're right. I mean, it's it's either all four of these items that we're going to discuss here, a combination of them, or a, uh, you know, two of the three, three, two of the four, three of the four, something right. of that nature. Yeah. And the security definitely, look, the, Al-Qaeda thought they were in a great position, in and putting they put their leader in the heart of Taliban controlled country in the Taliban's capital Kabul they have to be wondering how this went wrong right. I mean sort of an and arrogance the, there right of absolutely yeah. absolutely and 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 justifiably so we you could understand their arrogance and yet they so they have to be questioning everything they do now when it comes to their top leadership so it's extreme they do not want to suffer the loss of you know, they don't want to, you know, and, and it, it certainly is a significant feat killing Zawahiri in Afghanistan. But we have to remember, he's he was in charge of al-Qaeda for 11 plus years, and his predecessor was in charge of al-Qaeda for 11 plus years after 9-11. So each of the 22 years, two leaders of al-Qaeda killed. I always, when people say, wow, that's fantastic, I say, well, name me a nem- member of the top leadership of the U.S. government who 
um, was in government um, on September 11th, 2001, who's in U.S. government position today? The answer to that is no one. President Bush isn't in office. None of his cabinet uh, members are in office. None of the generals in office. So Al-Qaeda has done, you know, despite what we may think um, and despite the results of the drone campaign and this strike that killed Zawahiri and the raid that killed bin Laden, Al-Qaeda has done a pretty good job given their limited resources, given the fact that they have limited state sponsorship of protecting their leadership. They don't want to, you know, they'd much rather go with that 10-year time frame for their leaders being killed and as opposed to a three-month time frame. If they expose who their new leader is and potentially expose where he is, they have to, you know, they, those are the things they're taking into consideration. They're assessing all their security and communications protocols. Anyway, this is what I've been doing based on what I'd be doing if I were them. And I have no doubt this is what they're being do, what they are, they are considering themselves given how well they've protected the top tier of their leadership over the last two decades. Doing their own in-house risk assessment, like a DC publishing house. Essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to, you know, and you now you, people could say, well, this makes them weak. I, I look at that, you know, look, Al-Qaeda is a learning institution, doesn't always learn the right lessons, but it does make an effort to learn and to, to implement. This is what we saw with the, the Al-Qaeda setting up the, the affiliates or the branches, whatever you want to call them. Al-Qaeda calls them their, their theaters, um, you know, how they organize, how they diversify their leadership and organize it and the staffs and, and who they give, uh, control to in the in the case of top leadership being killed these are things al-qaeda innovates and again that doesn't always do the right thing it doesn't always appoint the right leaders but it's making an effort and we have to we have to consider that no and it certainly made the mistake of you know the the arrogance or i guess the the, the lack of care that's why we had of, of of living you know in Kabul that got him killed certainly al-qaeda is now reassessing that decision and for sure probably not going to make the same one at least you would think if they were, you know, actually smart. Absolutely. And let's go to that second point. What do you think's going on there, Caleb? Well, I mean, this goes hand in hand with what we're talking about being killed in Kabul, right? Of, you know, if Al-Qaeda finally does acknowledge Zawahiri's death, everyone knows he was killed in Kabul. That makes the Taliban look pretty bad. Uh, and Al-Qaeda is still wanting to celebrate the victory that they had with the Taliban. They want to make sure the Taliban government, you know, stands up, make sure it's successful, by acknowledging this, it puts the Taliban in a really bad place. Yeah, and and so some context for that for the listeners, right? The Taliban, as part of that deal that it signed, which was really the withdrawal deal with the U.S., it claimed that it wouldn't support al-Qaeda, that it wouldn't uh, allow al-Qaeda leaders – or really, it said foreign terrorists, foreign terrorist organizations wouldn't be sheltering in Afghanistan. Zawahiri being killed in Kabul at a safe house run by a friend or a member of Sirajun Haqqani's um, uh, leadership, you know, certainly is a bad look for the Taliban. It gives the West. I never understood this because that deal was really um, dead on arrival. But it, it's the Taliban likes to hold it up and say, we're we're living up to our end of the bargain. You aren't. And it's claiming the U.S. wasn't by conducting that. Strike. Right. I mean, if anything, the deal just gave the Taliban unwarranted legitimacy, which is what they want, which is what they're still trying to hold on to. Exactly. And so the Taliban don't want Zawahiri's death to be used against them. Uh, this is why it's dragging its feet on, on its, you know, putting the word in quotes, investigation into Zawahiri's death. You're never going to get any finality on that. So that, you know, the Taliban doesn't want, so 
what I suspect is happening is, and we know the two confer, right? So why was Zawahiri in Kabul to begin with? Um, and don't think that he was the only Al-Qaeda leader that's in Afghanistan. If he's there, members of his staff are certainly there, and other Al-Qaeda leaders we know are certainly in Afghanistan. So the te- they're conferring. They're trying to figure out a way uh, to to make this not look so bad for the Taliban. What I suspect we'll find up happening once, if if the announcement is ever made public, um, that there'll be some type of vague announcement that Zawahiri was killed in the Khorasan region or in the Afghanistan, Pakistan region, same thing, and might be vague on the details of his death. They might lie and say that he died of old age. They might claim he was killed in a, ter- in a counterterrorism operation and be very vague about how he was killed. Um, that's certainly a possibility. What do you think about that, Caleb? Yeah, I think if they're going to announce it or acknowledge it, that would be the route they would take. Uh, it seems less dangerous and, you know, wouldn't be able to really strike at the legitimacy they're going after in that. I mean, of course, the U.S. and others will be able to, but to them, it would make sense to do that to downplay sort of the the central locality of where it took place. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And and look, you know, Al-Qaeda would like nothing more than to say that he was killed in Kabul and killed in a U.S. airstrike. They they revel in that, right? Remember, their leaders don't retire. They don't join bo- corporation boards. They don't, you know, hit the links and play golf all week. They either die of old age or die in, in, a, in a military operation, and they celebrate this. They would love to say that he was killed by the U.S. in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, but this is part of the arrangement between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. They're going to work together to further each other's ends, and in this case, the Taliban's legitimacy, again, that word in quotes, not um, but the Taliban, you know, wanting to hide this is takes preeminence over al-Qaeda's desire to publicize his death for their, for their purpose. I mean, at this point, it's de facto legitimacy. I mean, we've already given that to them. They're doing diplomatic yes. deals with so many different countries. I mean, the U.S. is still basically engaging with them. For all intents and purposes, the Taliban is the quote-unquote legitimate government right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, when I say put it in quotes, uh, one of my bugaboos on this is that the you keep reading, the Taliban seeks legitimacy in the blah, blah, blah. The Taliban doesn't seek it. They desire it, but they're going to there but it's being given to them it's not and and they've recognized this so it's the taliban doesn't like struggle to you know it's not going to do things like grant uh right allow women, uh, girls to go to school and uh uh take away the the burqa things of that nature in order to placate the west in order to get desired legitimacy it takes its legitimacy and things like that peace deal and, and the government's coming to them uh let's move on to the the third possible angle um and that one I think is interesting with the uh, Saif Al Adel, who being the possible successor and where he may be. Talk to us a little bit about this. Right. It's not even just Saif Al Adel. I mean, if, if the new successor is, you know, Abdurrahman al Maghrebi, he's also supposedly in Iran. I mean, either way, both of these dudes being in Iran puts Al Qaeda in a weird place, uh, especially in terms of overall legitimacy. Again, that word legitimacy, but legitimacy for the, you know, global jihad. Uh, you have two of your most senior leaders, potentially your new overall emir, being based in a country that is ostensibly, you know, the second biggest, you know, enemy after, you know, America of, you know, that puts, you know, certainly cannon fodder for the Islamic State to go after Al Qaeda of you know, your emir is now in Iran. How could you p- proclaim to be leading the global jihad? Um, but also just in terms of Al-Qaeda supporters, which 
I, I go back and forth on this one of there's no way that people in Al-Qaeda currently don't already know that they have senior leadership in Iran. It's been an open secret for, for a long time. Um, but at the same time, I mean, new recruits, other potential people that could be, you know, pro-Al-Qaeda or whatever could find fault in that. And that puts Al-Qaeda in definitely a weird position to acknowledge that our leader is now, you know, ostensibly based in Iran. Yeah, absolutely, Caleb. And, and this is one where I think this is – and I'm a little surprised that the Islamic State doesn't take more advantage. This is – I mean they do I, sometimes. Like it's like very underscored because it's in Naba and in, and in Arabic. It's not you know the flashy English language stuff anymore. But they definitely go after it. Yeah, it's just not to the degree that I would expect. I would expect this to be a – you know, a, a lunch pail issue for the Islamic State, something they would advertise in multiple languages. And I think this, you know, if the Islamic State wasn't around, I think this wouldn't even be a concern, um, except to, you know, maybe on the fringes. Um, the Islamic State really could make an issue of this one. It could be front page news if it, you know, let's say if it is Maghrebi or Saif al Adel, who is the new leader. That's, you know, those are the front runners. Certainly Saif al Adel is the front runner, but it's certainly possible that it's Maghrebi as well. And if it's either of them, look, there's been reports that Saif al Adel, and this was immediately after Zawahiri was killed, there's reports that he's traveled to Afghanistan. We know he's gone back and forth. That certainly is possible. But just the fact, and um, keep in mind that photo came out with Saif al Adel and Maghrebi and Abu Muhammad al Mazri that was taken around sometime in two, before 2015 of them looking all clean cut and in their nice shirts and their tight haircuts and their slacks um, hanging out in central Iran. These are things that, the, again, this is, I think this is more of an issue for an al Qaeda with the presence of, of the Islamic State, uh, be less so without them. Absolutely. Um, just a small correction. It was Abu al-Khair al-Masri that was Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, you're right. That but was Abu. Either way, it was just another al-Qaeda leader based in Iran. I mean, it's still the main point here of like, you know, they've always had these these senior leaders based in Iran. But now the difference is that like your overall global leader is potentially based in Iran, which is a whole other set of, you know, can of worms that al-Qaeda will have to deal with if they go that route. I mean, there's also like tons of people that they could choose – that are not based in Iran, um, and certainly people that you know we probably we've never heard of, or they're you know relatively you know low profile in terms of media appearances. But you know they could go the route of the Iran-based leaders, or they couldn't. Like this is this is just still up in the air right now. Um, but assuming they do choose Adel or Maghrebi or whoever, eh, it could be a big problem, uh, and certainly something they would probably want to downplay at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, thank you for the correction on that. Uh, I. You go through these you know, guys killed in counterterrorism operations, you know, they're numerous. Um, and the last point, um, it's possible that Al-Qaeda has appointed its leader. As a matter of fact, it's most likely. It's very yeah, likely. I would assume they already have. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and just hasn't made it public, right, Caleb? Go talk to us a little bit. No, and I, I again, just to reiterate, none of these are mutually exclusive, uh, especially this one. It, it's, it's probably likely, just given the timeline of – the secession process after bin Laden was that they've already chosen the new leader. It's just very likely that they haven't announced it for, you know, these reasons or a host of other reasons that we're not even mentioning here. Um, but, you know, a lack of a public announcement doesn't necessarily mean they haven't already chosen that. And the various branches and allies or whoever haven't already sworn by or, you know, allegiance. 
you know, I, I think it's highly likely that already has happened. Uh, and, you know, certainly one piece of evidence that, you know, kind of cuts back against the argument about Al-Qaeda's, you know, you know, lack of, you know, cohesion right now or weakness is that, you know, not one Al-Qaeda branch or certainly even, an, uh, you know, an affiliate group or ally has kind of disavowed Al-Qaeda. They've never, they haven't released a statement saying, you know, what's happening. There's been no really open source information that we are saying that, you know, any of these groups have sort of had a problem with AQ not announcing a new leader or nothing in that vein since Wahri's death. Now, you've had, you know, several former AQ dudes, especially at HTS, uh, or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham in, in Syria, kind of making the case of, you know, you guys should leave AQ now, you know, there's, you know, there's no, nothing going on. But th- those guys aren't actual, you know, AQ members or AQ leaders in the fold. So to me, that's not necessarily an argument that AQ is in disarray or in dis- you know, this whole sort of, you know, non-cohesion moment right now. All the official branches haven't released anything you know, criticizing or disavowing. Um, to me, this still says that they are a cohesive network. And to me, that's probably, there probably is a leader that we don't know about. Yeah, or, or yeah, exactly. And if they're receiving guidance on the, what the communication right. or maybe is, like or the, communication should be. Right, or maybe like the general command is, you know, multiple people right now. And that's what they're going off of. Exactly. And the HDS argument is an, is an argument from the outside and an argument of opportunity in order to poach from Al-Qaeda. And they're probably making this argument to local, um, you know, members right. of Al-Qaeda. And this is, this is the, right? the buzzword of the entire podcast, but legitimacy. HTS is also trying to get, you know, legitimacy for their little statewide project in, in northwest Syria. So exactly. I, that plays into it as well. And look, we know in the past that Al Qaeda has ordered um, its branch, at least with its branches, to keep things on the down low. So, for instance, um, the Al Qaeda did this in the past uh, with Shabab, and I believe it was two thousand nine or ten. Um, I mean, maybe Zubair. even earlier. I mean, yeah, you possibly had, you had yes. Saleh Abu Nahan, who was you know a foreign leader of of Shabab, pledging allegiance to Bin Laden on behalf of the organization in I believe two thousand eight. That was, yes. We, I remember writing that up. Al-Qaeda never gave it an official response. No, but it's clear they, they acknowledged it behind the scenes and told them to shut up about it. Yeah, so basically what, what bin Laden did to Zabair, the former emir of, uh, of Shabab, he uh, basically said, look, um, yes, Shabab is a part of Al-Qaeda. You are a branch in East Africa, but don't publicize this. You could talk to your members. You could let them know that this oath is good, but let's not discuss it. And the reason, and I reported on this back, by the way, I reported on this about a year or two before the Bin Laden raid, and I was widely mocked in the counterterrorism community for doing so. But um, after the Bin Laden raid, when the first batch of 17 documents were released from Bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, one of the 17 documents was proof of this. Where, where, And the reason given, this is what I didn't know, was that, Bin Laden, what I, from my understanding was, you know, they just want, didn't want problems. Well, the problem was Al Qaeda was getting aid, foreign aid, because there was a drought in Somalia, as there usually is. And they were getting aid from foreign groups, um, to their territories they controlled. And if these were, if Shabab was officially part of Al Qaeda, it would made, 
aid distribution and other support that was coming in very difficult. So bin Laden was making a calculation. It's much better for al-Qaeda to receive that aid and distribute it than it was to publicize the ties between al-Qaeda and Shabab. Now, when Zawahiri became emir, that um, he decided, because he was the one who actually wanted to publicize this, Surprises of all surprises, there's disagreements and leadership between leaders and organizations. So here he decided to make the the oath of allegiance public, and the rest is history. So that period is actually one of my favorite, like fun facts, I guess, if you can call it that, for Shabab. Uh, during that drought period, during the period of 2010, 2011, when they were still technically, you know, part of Al Qaeda, but they were downplaying it, is they were having these events for the drought of getting all these, you know, the aid and distributing it. And for whatever reason, they decided to feature Jihad Sirwan Mustafa, who is a, mm-hmm. who's an American citizen, but uh, a I member of Al Qaeda of yeah. like, they were trying to, it's basically just it's very on the nose of like, yeah, we're Al Qaeda, but we're downplaying it, but we want everyone to know we're Al Qaeda, but we're still going to deny it. And I think that's, one, it's hilarious in a dark way of just that they even decided to do that. But two, also shows that they were Al-Qaeda at that point. Of You had Jihad Mustafa, who was sent there as the personal representative of Zawahiri. Yeah, and at that point, he was, he was a deputy mayor, but eventually became you know, the overall mayor, obviously, and thus still remained as the personal representative of Zawahiri. And by the way, he's still out there. We don't know... Yeah, the Where FBI still says he's active in Shabab. Yep. So, you know, this is when you know, and this is when you know people. You you had mentioned earlier, and I wanted to, to hit on this. Uh, you know, we don't know. You know, maybe it's someone we don't know, or you know, who is an unknown who becomes the leaders. Guys like this, you and I know about. There's guys that we don't know about who may be just as effective within the organization that can rise to the leadership. Um, so, Caleb, let's uh, let's move on. Um, thank, I think it's a great discussion on the possibilities. You have anything to add to to this before we we head over to what's happening in Somalia now? No, I think we've uh, hit about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going off of, you know, I felt it was a good good way to get over from the Al-Qaeda's leadership to um, to what's happening in Somalia, noting that 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 part there, that that piece of history where Al-Qaeda suppressed the ties intentionally for its own gains. Now we know it's been a decade plus since those ties have been made public after the death of, of bin Laden. You know, Shabab's been, again, I, I think one of the most effective and one of the most active of Al-Qaeda's branches. It's been it's extremely difficult to suppress. It's very effective at negotiating the local politics and clan politics and of Somalia. But the Somalia's trying to fight back. And Caleb, tell us about this offensive that's been underway. Why is it happening and what's happening? Before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about what you just said about very good at kind of manipulating the local clan politics of Somalia. A lot of people take that to mean that they are solely focused on, you know, the local issues of Somalia. They are just, you know, basically just Somalia focused. Uh, well, two things to that. One, that's not true. I mean, they've they've had two members arrested overseas for trying to take, you know, flight lessons. They've had, you know, attacks in Kenya. They've had attacks in Djibouti elsewhere. I mean, it's a whole regional thing with probably attack aspirations elsewhere. Secondly. Just because they're, you know, a Somalia group that kind of manipulates the clan system doesn't make that mutually exclusive with overall global jihad. To them, it goes hand in hand. You know, this, the local yeah. fuels the global. Yeah. This is something we've discussed. I mean, they're, they're doing this. They're, they're manipulating the local system to build up this Islamic emirate for al-Qaeda's proposed global caliphate. 
Yep. And and Al-Qaeda did this in Pakistan's tribal areas. It led to the creation of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. It definitely navigated the tribal situation. Look, there's always there's been problems with it at times too. Um, but you know, and I but they Which we will get into localized here, for sure. Uh, they've definitely had some problems with the Quan, you know, manipulation, uh, which is part of what we're going to talk about moving forward here. Of I mean, just to jump into it, I guess is like yeah, go for it. You know, sort of you know, Somalis having a large counteroffensive against Shabab currently, and it's been going on for roughly a month now. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and other people can correct me in the comments or on Twitter or whatever, but I believe this is the largest military offensive against Shabab probably since 2011. I mean, I don't remember anything of this scale going against Shabab. You know, it, you know this is kind of unprecedented, of, especially coming off of five years of Farmajo, uh, the former president of Somalia, of basically who was either unwilling or incapable of actually going after Shabab, which sort of led to the stagnation over the last, you know, since 2017, essentially, that, you know, sort of led to Shabab's rise over the those last five years. Um, but anyway, so in mid-September, so last month, um, Shabab, or Somalia started this counteroffensive against Shabab, um, sort of after Shabab did a large hotel siege in Mogadishu. Um, this was in late August, I believe, where Shabab laid siege to the Hyatt Hotel in Mogadishu. They they laid siege to it for you know roughly thirty hours plus, um, which is you know sort of their longest hotel siege in Mogadishu ever. Um, I mean, dozens of people were killed. I mean, this was unprecedented scale for for what they were doing there. Um, and sort of this came after the new president of Somalia, or new old, I guess, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, who formerly you know, was president before, but this is his second non-consecutive term. Um, he came into office, and I think Shabab sort of did that hotel siege as a challenge to him, I think, of, you know, your predecessor didn't do anything to stop us. Let's see what you're going to do. So they, they did this attack, uh, and to his credit, Hassan Sheikh took him up on it. He, after the, the hotel siege, he vowed to defeat Shabab in one year, which personally I think is too over-optimistic. That's that's, a, that's 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 a bold yeah. statement, which probably it sure will come is. next year around this time. It will come back to bite him. Um, I, but that's a that's a whole other podcast we could do. I admire his yeah. his uh, right. desire. And, and to be and fair, right, to his credit, he is actually going after them, unlike his predecessor for the last five years. And I think he should get credit for that. I mean, this is something that Somalia has struggled with, especially under Formaggio. And now you have a guy coming in that you know actually has the energy and political will to go after this group, uh, and he's doing it. Uh, but there's problems with this. I mean, basically, Somalia is going down this two-pronged approach. Of they're using their their normal forces, the SNA, the Somali National Army, alongside clan-based militias or the Maoisli. So the Maoisli are tribal clan fighters around central and southern Somalia. They're they're normal citizens. Basically, they're just mobilized citizens fed up with Somalia or Shabab's manipulation of the clans. Um, so. Somalia is arming these people, they're training them, they're giving them weapons, and sending them on to fight with the regular army. Um, which, I'm going to interrupt here yeah. real quick, Caleb. Just think of the Awakenings, or the yes. Sons of Iraq I think that's the of Iraq, best way to or put the Arbakai in Afghanistan. Mixed results, as history has shown with yeah. these, in, in keeping them. But so. I, I think the, the Sunni Awakening in Iraq is certainly probably the best analogy to this. So it, it, you know, sort of like where 
you know, the Sunni tribes in Iraq that were fed up with AQI, and that's why they, they joined the fight. Sort of the same thing was happening with some of the local clans in Somalia. Of just they were tired of being under sub, you know subjugation by Shabab, where they weren't agreeing with the the whole radicalism, and they decided to take up arms. And the Somali state is basically weaponizing that right now, which is I mean the Maoisli have been around for years, but this is sort of the first large scale mobilization of them sponsored by the state. Um, so it's going on this two pronged approach where the SNA. Um, is sort of doing a lot of the heavy lifting of going after you know certainly villages and small towns. Maawisli is giving support uh, and also doing some of the holding operations. Um, and you know, we at Longwood Journal we've covered this extensively over the last month. And one of the things that we argued is that you know, and this is something you said, Bill, that I kind of just expanded on of that you know clearing operations is one thing, but holding operations is a whole other you know ball game. And this is sort of where. Somalia is right now. Uh, they've taken over dozens of villages and small towns, uh, s- struggling to hold some of them. So you, you're seeing Shabab with their propaganda, you know, claiming to have recaptured some villages, some towns. Uh, certainly, f- photos of dozens of dead Maoisli fighters. Um, but it, you know, the the battle still remains. I mean, this is this is currently going on in central Somalia. So. Uh, so that, like the Haran region is where it's mainly taking place, which is sort of north east a bit of where Mogadishu is by several hundred kilometers. Um, then also in neighboring Galgadud, which is right next to Haran and southwest of Haran in the Bay region, which is technically actually uh, southern Somalia. Um, but in all of these these areas, it's it's SNA leading the charge with Maawisli taking smaller ops. Um, and then Atmos, which is sort of the African Union. Before we get to Atmos, Caleb, yeah. um, and one of the things to note, to hold, you know, you, as you noted, clearing is one thing and holding is another. Clearing militaries, you know, the, the reality is that the Somali National Army can mass more forces, but the holding is, as you said, the hard part. And the only way you can effectively hold, and we saw this in Iraq more prominently with the Sons of they were most effective when there were U.S. forces partnered with them that were, you know, minutes away, able, able to provide air support and intelligence and, and quick reaction teams. So if the Somali National Army or Atmos or the U.S. isn't capable of providing that level of support, this is where they become vulnerable and you actually – can make things worse in these areas if if that's not uh, available and that's that's the one thing we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, well, I mean, well put. I mean, I, I sort of tried to get into that in my little analytical article um, of that. You know, this is sort of a huge logistical challenge for Somalia too. Uh, I mean, putting all these clan fighters in these certain towns and villages. I mean, you have to continually support those guys, otherwise they are going to fold. Um, and certainly that happened in some areas that Shabab has taken advantage of. Um, but in other areas, they are holding. So it it's kind of a mixed bag right now, and the, the the battle's still, I mean, it's far from over, so we'll see what happens. But certainly the holding is where Somalia is struggling a bit and probably will continue to struggle, um, if not supported correctly or well, um, which certainly, you know, this is what he's getting into with, with Atmos, which is the African Union trading mission in Somalia. It's sort of the, the successor to, to AMISOM. Um, as AMISOM is trying to pull out, they've kind of transitioned to the trading mission, which training mission should be in quotes as well because you know they are doing ops but also they're training so it's, it's weird but regardless atmos is supporting the these ops with you know 
medical support, medevac support, um, allegedly Djiboutian troops uh, in Haran, which is Haran is the sector given to Djibouti. Um, Djiboutian troops are allegedly providing uh, mechanized support to the SNA, so that includes you know armored vehicles or just you know vehicles in general. Um, but also the U.S. is involved. Um, the U.S. has conducted two airstrikes since this uh, offensive has started, uh, both of which we've covered at Longwood Journal. Um, you know, one of one allegedly killed 27 Shabab fighters, which was a quote-unquote defensive strike, um, which is just fancy U.S. terms for saying that they supported local troops on the ground in contact. Um, and then another one, they killed a co-founder of Shabab, Abdullah Hayare, um, who actually was, he was the head of Dawa. So Dawa is like this Islamic term meaning proselytizing or, you know, sort of getting people to join their version of Islam. Um, but he also had a $3 million bounty on his head by rewards for justice. Um, so not an unknown senior leader of Shabab. Um, but I, even if with his death, I don't think that's going to make that much of a difference on the ground. I mean, he was a Dawa guy and before that a media guy. He wasn't a strategic or military leader. Um, but it's still, it's still a W. It's still a win for both the U.S. and Somalia that he was taken out. Um, I always argue, Caleb, we, it's good we killed him. The, sac- yeah. the, the problem is we don't kill him quick enough. Yeah, we still, need to kill him in succession in order to cause some type of leadership vacuum. It's the, These guys, Yara's been around, no doubt, for years, if not decades, and his replacement has been waiting in the wings. Again, they don't they don't retire. They they don't hit the golf course. They don't, um, you know, they, they either get killed in military operations or they die of old age. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, and sort of with the, the U.S. airstrikes, it sort of gives the implication that they are more than likely involved in other ways. I mean, if drones are already overhead, they're probably providing ISR support, probably providing other support. I mean, the special forces are back in Somalia. It's probably likely that they're there in some sort of advisory capacity um, that the U.S. is you know keeping mom about. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Either way, the U.S. is ostensibly supporting it, along with the African Union. Um, you know, Atmos is also sort of creating these JOCs, these Joint Operations Centers, um, to better coordinate with the SNA. So, I mean, this is a large-scale thing that's getting the support of basically not only the clan fighters, but the whole array of, you know, international support for the Somalian army, uh, or military, rather. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is unprecedented. Uh, and, you know, right now it's based in, you know, largely central Somalia and a little bit in Bay, which is southern Somalia, but it's likely going to expand. Um, and over the past two days, Somalia has said they've done, you know, uh, other offensives in Middle Shabelle, which is the region just north east, I guess, of Mogadishu. Um, so also sort of central southern Somalia. Um, so they they claim to have killed, you know, dozens of fighters there. Um, which, by the way, Shabab has already done retaliatory strikes against that offensive. They've claimed to have killed Ugandan and Burundian troops in response in the region, and also Mogadishu. Um, but you know, there's also a potential for you know the expansion of wider ops in southern Somalia. Um, so Jubaland, which Jubaland is a semi-autonomous region of Somalia, just like Puntland, um, but it's led by this guy named Ahmed Madobe. Afamadobe himself is a former, you know, rebel, militant, whatever you want to call him, um, but he's anti-Shabab. 
uh, he announced that his government or his regional force will likely start their own counteroffensive against Shabab soon. So, you know, this whole offensive that started in you know, mid-September in central Somalia is now sort of expanding across, you know, all of central and southern Somalia potentially, um, which, again, is just the largest military offensive that Shabab has faced since, I believe, 2011, which is something to be said for that, of that they haven't had to face this in a long time, and now they are. So it's important to see where or how Shabab is going to respond to this and how effectively they're going to respond to it. Um, yeah, and it's it's difficult, Caleb, to know, like, does the Somali military, like, I've just seen very little analysis on the Somali military's capabilities. Right. I mean, what is their capability to do this longstanding offensive? Yeah. I mean, this- and not just, and, 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 and to widen it as well, because these operations are most effective um, when they're launched concurrently in different regions. Which is away, what they're trying to do, right? Take away the ability to regroup and, 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 gets support from elsewhere but that to me is the the big that's like the really hard part to know about all of this no and i'm i'm not smart enough to know about the sna's you know logistical capabilities or you know certainly their their long-term planning i i I don't know um but i do know that they are you know ostensibly trying to compensate for any lack that they they do suffer in those those uh you know facets of, you know, this is why they brought in the Mile Weasley. This is why they're trying to get Jubaland's regional force, which is a separate military force from the SNA involved. Um, so certainly trying to not only expand the geographical scope, but the actors involved f- alongside them fighting against Shabab, um, which I think is probably trying to compensate for what you just said of like the lack of capabilities of, of this. So certainly they, they've thought about it. Um, now, how that translates to what actually happens on the ground, I don't know. But what is what's Shabab's response to this offensive? Yes, yeah, they've had several offensive or several responses, I guess. Um, after Hassan Sheikh made his original vow to defeat Shabab in one year, um, Shabab actually released a video where their main spokesman Ali Raje um, kind of had a cheeky response to that of saying that we accept your challenge. Uh, verbatim, that's what he said in Somalia, is we accept your challenge uh, and we will face you head on. Um, and certainly Shabab has. Um, they've certainly not backed down yet. Um, they've been meeting the Mao Weasley and the SNA in Central Somalia pretty much head on. Uh, now they've done tactical retreats, especially from you know larger settlements that they, they want to conserve manpower. Um, but some of those they've already retaken. Um, and certainly that tactical retreat is something Shabab is notorious of doing and they're also very good at that this is what they've done in mogadishu three times in 2006 9 11 of preserving their overall forces and then they just expand elsewhere um so that's certainly a possibility but for the most part shabab is pretty much meeting them head on um which certainly says something about shabab's capabilities and their overall manpower right if yeah exactly you read my mind it's very Taliban like the Taliban had you know over the years um just had been able you know very effectively taken this is what they did with the tracking the district control right Taliban would take a district the Afghan military would send in their commanders their best forces retake it hold it for a month and the Taliban would come back in and then it would it was would go back and forth until 
one of the two tired of it, usually being the Afghan government. Um, this is a very effective. I always wonder how much communication has been going back and forth between, you know, Afghanistan and various branches. But if if it's true, then Shabab has really internalized the lessons. But they've been good at it from the beginning. I suspect this is just something that, you know, the Shabab has learned on its own over time and they probably refined tactics. Right. I mean, as, as an organization, they've been around since I think roughly 2005, but also a lot of the senior leaders were fighting in the, you know, the height of the Somali civil war in the early nineties. So this is something that they, they know very well and they're very good at. Um, but, but, you know, again, we'll see, uh, this is all in flux right now. I, I certainly don't think, um, this is going to be an easy battle for Somalia. Um, so, you know, we'll see. And, and, you know, one example of why this won't be easy is that, you know, in addition to the rhetorical, uh, you know, responses that Shabab has had, they've also done, you know, physical responses. I mean, there was a giant triple suicide bombing in Bella Dwayne, uh, I believe last week or the week before, uh, which Bella Dwayne is, is a base, I think, I believe it's the capital of Haran. Um, so it's a, a, the major city in the Haran region where all of this fighting is taking place. Um, they did a you know double suicide bombing on sort of this mobilization center where the central government was mobilizing clan fighters to join the Maa Weasley. Um and then certainly after those two initial bombings, they did a the third bombing on emergency personnel and you know other people showing up to you know do casavac or medevac or whatever of of the wounded, um, which is a hallmark of Shabab and other terrorist groups of you know you do the initial attack and then you target the you know emergency personnel afterwards. Um, but 30 people were killed in that. I mean, that uh, giant suicide bombing, uh, which, by the way, that number of 30 people keeps rising. That 30 number was just a couple of days ago. Uh, more people are dying from wounds, and they're still finding people in the rubble. I mean, that the whole center was completely flattened. Um, so certainly this is not only uh, – not only they're doing rhetorical responses, but stuff like that. And I, I would imagine as the offensive start and probably expand – Shabab will do more of that. I mean, this is this is one way that they can retaliate effectively, um, and certainly strike fear in people, and certainly strike fear in you know normal people who necessarily you know they support the the the, the offensive, but in doing so after these may rethink that and pressure the federal government to scale it back. Because I'm assuming yeah, is what the, their hope is. These type of attacks, as we've seen, it really work to sap the morale of. The, military government and especially the people in the areas it it really instills fear so you really have to be committed to this fight and be able to take weather those type of blows so again we'll see how this works out somalia has been this isn't the first suicide attack in this region it won't be the last there's been a lot so yeah and uh, you know what you're saying about you know the taliban in, in afghanistan sort of vacillating control with the federal government uh, Haran is notorious for that. So prior to this offensive, Haran, and certainly to lesser extent, Gaugadud and Mudug, which are these the three main reasons, regions of central Somalia, Shabab has you know historically always operated in those areas, but in the last few years, especially um, you know in, under the aforementioned you know reign of Farmajo, of they've sort of expanded in central Somalia, but the federal government has done many offensives or many smaller scale offensives to try to take back areas in Haran and Gagadud, but those areas often vacillate. Um, so for the past several years, I mean, Haran has, has seen the same thing that Afghanistan saw of, yeah, like SNA will take back an area, but Shabab will be back in control the next week or vice versa. 
Um, so certainly this is another way that, you know, this is a, a larger offensive than before of we're not necessarily seeing the same scale of vacillation right now, which could change. Yeah, they, I would always argue, too, that the the back and forth is its advantage. People say oh, this shows Shabab's weakness or the terrorist group's weakness. I always argue that it really shows the weakness of the government. The, the people expect the government to control. And when they can't, when it vacillates frequently, they realize the government isn't in control. And that puts people on the fence or gets them to jump the fence to the other side. So if, if the, you know, the Somali army, you know, I remember with Afghanistan, I remember it at some point looking particularly at the fighting in Helmand, watching these districts go back and forth. I just came to the conclusion that there's no way that, you know, the people didn't, don't mind. I don't want to say don't mind, but like they can accept people dying. They can accept family members dying while fighting terrorist organizations but they, but when the violence continues when control shifts continuously the same and things keep getting destroyed and and nothing changes that's when that's when the apathy kicks in or that's when you know people look to jump to the other side so if the somali government wants to maintain its gains here it has to it has to hold um at some point you know they're just going to lose if they if that hasn't happened already in some areas right um so difficult to know though Right. I mean, this is also, I mean, getting into the, what you're saying about, you know, the drop in morale of certainly not only the, the suicide attacks and this lack of, you know, the, or the vacillation contributes to that, but also like the propaganda battle that's going on right now, um, which, I mean, Shabab has shown dozens of photos that killed Mal Weasley, killed SNA fo- you know, troops. Those are obviously meant to degrade the morale of both of those forces, meant to show, you know, family or whoever that, you know, your sons are dying. Um you know, I, I think that's also going to be effective for Shabab of, of weakening the morale um, to the extent of which I don't know, but that is another way that they are responding to this. Um, and certainly the federal government of Somalia is also going on their own propaganda spree of they're putting out, you know, sort of ridiculous numbers of killed Shabab. Like, I mean, it's certainly possible that they killed 90 one day and 100 the next day, but that, to me that seems ridiculous when they weren't before. Um, and, and of course, I know this is a larger offensive and more people are mobilized, but those are just, I mean, they're sort of too large to be believable, if that makes sense. Oh, it does, Caleb. We've seen this time and time again. Um, you know, we'll call, you know, I've seen Afghan math and Iraqi math, and this is what we'll call Somali math, maybe divided by five or ten, and you might get the real number. Right. Like, I'm not saying they're not, they aren't killing a lot of Shabbat fighters, because they are, but like, to me, it's just like, it's not believable at this point um and i don't want to take away any potential victories of the federal government because i I definitely support them in this fight but to me that it seems like that that's one way that the federal government is doing propaganda i I always dislike the body count arguments too because if you claim you're killing this many and then you still can't assert control at some point that works a double-edged sword right of of sure you want to claim high success rates, but one, it kind of underscores or kind of attacks your your troop estimate for what you said earlier. Shabab had like 7,000, 12,000 fighters or whatever. But if you do the math or someone will do the math on how many people they're killing a month, it adds up. Of like, eh, this doesn't really, I mean, you might have not been telling the truth on what you think Shabab is, or maybe they didn't know how large Shabab is. Another way is that let's say that gets to a point where they start claiming to have killed more people than what they ever originally said Shabbat was. 
Uh, so, so now you're implying that they replenish their ranks, which is not the W that you were looking for, because that implies that you don't have the capability to stop that large of a recruitment drive. So, it, yeah, I, numbers estimates or number the 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 you know body count argument is not a good one, regardless. Um, but I understand why they're doing it because it's it's a it's a route of propaganda they could easily take. Um, which I mean, the federal government's also doing more than that. They also they're going on like a banning spree right now of propaganda accounts or what they claim as propaganda accounts. Um, certainly, a lot of them are Shabbat propaganda accounts being banned in Somalia, but others are potentially caught in the crossfire because um, the language that the federal government put out, which they put out a statement saying that based on Somali laws, anyone who shares Shabbat propaganda is violation of our terrorism act. So basically, it's kind of worded in a way that even if we were to do another article where we used, you know, Shabab photos or something, we could potentially be banned in Somalia because we were technically sharing the propaganda. Um, but you know, well, one hand again, I get it; they need to shut down some sort of avenue for Shabab to spread the propaganda. But if it's too wide, people like us or other journalists or other analysts or researchers or whoever are going to be caught, caught in the crossfire in that, and then it doesn't help your case. Right, like it, we're we're ultimately on the side of Somalia, but like yeah, I was just going to say, Caleb. I mean, look, <laughs> like, we're banned. Long War Journal has been banned in Pakistan, I think, for ten years now. I've, it's been so long that I forget, and we wear that as a badge of honor. But it would be case, pretty though. sad yeah, if we yeah. were banned in Somalia when yeah. we, you know, certainly support the government of Somalia. We're just trying to get to the bottom of what's happening, and that requires looking at all sides. You know, I don't like the fact that Shabab may have killed. A lot of Somali troops, but that photo evidence is, 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 you know, we have to evaluate that type no, of information. There is value in that. Uh, one thing I always go back to is I think it was in 2016, the Al Ade attack in, in southern Somalia, where Shabab just absolutely routed a, a Kenyan base. And Kenya downplayed that for weeks. They denied it. They denied it. I mean, well, first they denied it, and then they were yeah. forced to acknowledge it, but then they downplayed how big it was. And then Shabab released a video and subsequent photos, and it was just, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of, of KDF troops. Uh, Somali, are, I'm sorry, Kenyan armored vehicles, was, you know, captured and things of that. It was pretty bad. I mean, there, so there is value in looking at Shabab propaganda when compared to what the government is saying or what these other you know, forces are saying. Sort of this happened earlier this year with Burundi of, you know, the, the, the Burundian base in Middle Shabelle that was overran. Burundi did sort of the same thing. They they downplayed it. They sort of denied it for a bit. Uh, but then Shabab released photos showing that they legitimately captured that base. I mean, they killed dozens of Burundian troops. That I don't. I still think Burundi hasn't given a, a full estimate of how many actually died there. Um, so th- this happens all the time. Um, but all that has to say is is we're definitely on the side of the Somali government here. We definitely support what they're doing. But there is a value of using Shabab propaganda in analysis, that given how Somalia is going about this this banning spree of certainly people like us and other analysts and researchers will probably be caught in the crossfire and be banned in Somalia, which helps no one. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. Look, uh, the reality is, is I couldn't have understood what was happening in Iraq and particularly in Anbar province without looking at al-Qaeda and Iraq propaganda and, and understanding what their goals and what they were trying to do and who their leadership was. Same goes with Afghanistan. I know the same, go, go, you know, how did I understand what the Taliban, how they plan to counter the surge and the subsequent transition and, um, you know, 
the Afghan government defending the cities versus the Taliban taking the rural areas. It was from monitoring Taliban propaganda. I know you do the same thing in, in areas you track and you've done it in Syria, Caleb and Iraq, and you've done it in, in Africa. You have to look at all sides of these issues. No. And I think that's to, the, the key word, all source, right? Cause like look, a, a lot of our critics like to say that we just freaking use propaganda or whatever, but no, we're, basing that off of other reports. This is an all-source analysis here of, of sort of looking at what Shabab is saying in comparison with what is, what's the government saying. What is, you know, the civilians saying? What, what are other people saying? And then we take all that into our analysis. That's it, all important. Yeah, if, if I'm, a, I'm an avid sports fan. It's a great escape from the madness of what we cover. And if I only looked at what the Philadelphia Eagles, the information they put out and what they were saying about the team – um, I'd, uh, I would not have a good understanding of what to expect week to week, but you have to look at what the other you know, newspaper from the other team is doing, what the other teams, how about their offense and defense looks like you have to, you have to evaluate it all. Like I could be a fan. I don't like our enemies, but I certainly have to be able to understand what our enemies are doing and what they're saying and what their goals and objectives and, and how they, they work to implement those their strategy and their tactics. It's it's really important. Definitely say this is the biggest threat Shabab has faced since 2011, that offensive. And, um, you know, it certainly remains to be seen what, what happens. And we're, we're going to be watching this as we continue to do with all the issues we right. cover. I mean, I think I have two final points, both of them kind of, kind of related uh, in the sense that, you know, as these offensive offenses are happening across central Somalia and likely further in southern Somalia, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier about Shabab is notorious for these tactical retreats where they, they leave one area, they, they show up in another. Uh, one thing I'm worried about is, you know, when Jubaland does start their offensive, if they start the offensive, which I, I assume they will, what happens to Kenya? We know that, you know, Jubaland borders Kenya. We know that Shabab already has a sizable presence in northeast Kenya. You know what happens when this full offensive starts in Jubaland? Do do more Shabab fighters go into Kenya, which creates a whole further problem for Kenya? Just the the Shabab insurgency in eastern northeastern Kenya get worse? The, does Kenya start their own offensive against Shabab inside Kenya? You know, so these are sort of ramifications that people need to be thinking about as these offensives keep happening. And this is not just for Kenya. Uh, we know that Shabab also did an incursion to Ethiopia earlier this year. You know, as his offensive in Haran and Gagadud and elsewhere continue, which border Ethiopia, do we see more incursions into Ethiopia? Uh, you know, and then another thing that I think is important to talk about is, you know, also last month, Shabab did a suicide bombing in an area of northern Somalia that's disputed between Somaliland and Somalia. So technically in Somaliland claimed territory, but, you know, on you know, de facto controlled and governed by Somalia, Potland, uh, the northern semi-autonomous region. Of you know, this is a an area where they really don't strike that often. I mean, this is the first suicide bombing in Somaliland claimed territory since 2018. You know, certainly this shows that Shabab is you know not only active across central and southern Somalia, but they're also expanding in northern Somalia. So with these offensives elsewhere, do more fighters go up to northern Somalia, creating more problems for Potland and potentially Somaliland? You know, sort of. You know, these are all issues that people need to be thinking about as this offensive continues. Yeah, the the these types of operations. If this does happen, it shows that the Shabab's reach can be far greater 
than um, the Somali government had recognized. And it creates problems and puts pressure on the Somali government. Does the Kenyan government start pressuring the Somali government to ease off in the south in order to keep problems in eastern Kenya? On, uh, you know, or do they start their own? Like, do they yeah. join in on themselves? Or, and that can backfire on Shabab. So that's it could because then certainly up right when I mean, you get that pincer movement, essentially the Jubaland forces pushing from you know the north south, and then Kenyan troops pushing north from Kenya. I mean, this could be a problem for Shabab if they coordinate that way, which TBD remains to be seen. Um, but certainly something that people need to be thinking about. Caleb, thank you again for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm always glad to be here. I am technically the unofficial co-host, but I'm still glad to be a guest. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get you to that official co-host <laughs> okay. status pretty soon, Caleb. I'm, I'm eager for it. Um, that'll be our long-running joke, and we'll have that conversation next year, I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but oh, again, Caleb, great to have you. Great to get your insights. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.